If you are one who has ever suspected, even in part, that there are, truly, monsters of both human and unhuman kind shadowing the earth, then do, I implore, proceed into my story, where awaits that confirmation. Listen with the utmost vigilance, however, and should there come a point in which you can endure no more, the listener will not be thought a coward to quit this podcast at once. Still here? Very well. This is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast, Chapter 1, The Perfect Ending. What you just heard was an excerpt from a book, slightly reworked for our purposes. This book and two others like it will, in part, be the subject of this podcast. The books tell a story that will fundamentally change how you see the world around you, assuming any of it is true, of course. But not to worry, this is not a podcast for those who have read these books. In fact, it is for those of us who have not. We're also going to focus on the man who may or may not have authored the trilogy in question, but more on him later. Let me begin by introducing myself. My name is Lindsay Mallon. I live in Circle City, Indiana, a Midwestern metropolis that looks like an island of the urban and a sea of the rural. I am not a native. I moved in from out of state for a job here. I have worked in radio since college, but only recently have I become the host of my own show. Well, I say my show, but really I inherited it from a man named Ray Kadera, who created the program all the way back in the 1970s. I took over hosting duties when he finally retired after more than four decades on the air. I should mention that Ray has since passed away, so I feel an even greater responsibility to take care of his baby. Circle City Supernatural is a late-night talk show that airs on an AM station. Despite the hour and the limited broadcast capability, the show is surprisingly popular with the locals. They call in to tell their stories of the, you guessed it, supernatural. For a show of this format to have endured as long as it has, you would think that there must be an unusually high concentration of the otherworldly in this town. For that to be true, however, you'd have to believe any of the callers, which, I have to admit, is often difficult. I pulled some clips from my show to play as examples, but I got a little creative in cutting them together, so what was supposed to be a montage is now more of a medley. Enjoy. My friends dared me to go in that abandoned fire station at 5th and Moreland. You know, the haunted one. I had to get all the way upstairs and shine my cell light through one of the windows to prove I'd gone farther in than just the front door. Well, I did it, and I heard my friends cheer from the street, but then I heard something else. Something in the room with me. I spun around, and standing there behind me was a A huge beast. That's what it sounded like, out in the woods howling like crazy. I scrambled from my tent and looked around. The fire was dying by then? but it was still enough light to reflect in the eyes of something off in the trees. It was coming toward me. I didn't think. I just turned and ran. But I didn't get far before I hit a log and tripped, falling into- Toilet! It came right up through the plumbing! I thought it was a snake at first, but it was like on a squid, you know, a a tentacle. It whipped around, splashing bowl water everywhere. Well, I snatched up the plunger and started hitting at it. But the thing grabbed me, wrapped right around my arm, pulling me out of my car. The light was all around me now. I couldn't move, but I felt myself hovering through the air. I was being taken up, up, into... A dream, 
At least I thought it was when I bolted upright. I wasn't in bed, though. I was in the cemetery. I climbed to my feet and looked around. I couldn't remember how I had gotten there. Then I turned and looked at the grave I'd been lying on. The name. The name on the headstone. It was... Elvis Aaron Presley. Now, I'm not saying it was him for sure who I saw coming out the Walmart, but at the same time, that's exactly what I'm saying. If I'm wrong, well, so help me, I'll... Burn down the barn. That was all I could think to do after I trapped that giant bird thing in there. I never did get a good look at it. Guess I never will, but at least... My mother's in a better place now. I just wish she hadn't left me her doll collection. They always creeped me out as a kid, but I had to keep them because they were hers. I put them in a box down in the basement, when really, I should have just thrown them in the trash. Because that night... They got out and they killed everybody! Did you see that documentary about the escape circus lines? That was here in Circle City way back when. It happened after a witch put a curse on the ringmaster. That part they left out the documentary. Well, in the chaos, some lanterns got knocked over and started a fire. The whole big top burned down to the ground. And if you go out there late at night, and if you listen real close, sometimes you can still hear very faint-like. Yeah, so that's what I contend with on a nightly basis. I listen to these people, give them the benefit of the doubt, and try to engage them in meaningful conversation free of sarcasm or mockery. And it's not always easy. We get plenty of cranks who call in, sure, but the majority of them sound sincere enough. I'm usually pretty good about discerning who's telling the truth and who lost a dare or who had too much to drink. But then there was that fateful call. The one that made me question all of my instincts. I believed the man, you see. But that would mean he was telling me the truth, and if he was, well, it would change everything. The call came in, of all times, on Halloween night. I could tell this one was different. First of all, the caller was clearly not from Circle City. His accent is pretty thick, plus the phone call itself makes it a little difficult to understand him. So listen closely. All right. Let's do a couple more calls before the break. Hello, and welcome to Circle City Supernatural. You're live on the air, so watch your language. I came into this restaurant for tea, but they do not serve it. Okay. I heard your show on the radio. The waitress turned it on. Have you had anyone calling to report something strange? (laughs) Only constantly. I suppose strange is not the word for it. This would have been something very special. Something... Momentous. Momentous, huh? Like what? A transcendental bijection of space. It would have been a major gravitational event. Um, I don't think we've had any calls about whatever you said. I do not understand. The device indicated that it happened here, in this city. How could no one have seen it? Well, what would it have looked like? Like nothing ever seen on Earth before. Well, maybe at least once before. I didn't catch your name. I'm Dr. Bingwen Zhao. Doctor, huh? Don't get a lot of those on the show. So you mentioned a device of some kind. An old one, yes. It had not been used in many years. I was working in the facility where it is housed when there was a sudden power loss. Something was draining the facility's energy. I traced the source of it to a sub-level, a storage area for unused parts and equipment. I found a machine, a massive one that had been built into the wall, and it had turned itself on. What was this machine, Doctor? 
I do not know exactly, but seem to have traced in the event I spoke of. According to the readings, the phenomenon occurred in a circle city just last week. This is why I came, but I can find no one who witnessed it. What was this facility, Doctor? And what kind of work did you do there? I'm not permitted to say, but then I'm not permitted to speak about any of this. Okay. You mentioned that maybe this, whatever this was, may have happened once before. How do you know? There was a very old note taped to the device from the last time it was used, I believe, and had a name on it. The paper was yellowed and the ink faded, but I could still read it. What was the name, Doctor? Doctor, are you still there? Was the device used for this man? Did he make the journey? Is a traversable wormhole truly possible? A wormhole? If this is so, then he did the impossible. I'm, I'm a scientist, a genius even. But if this man was able to do what I think he did, then he was something else altogether, something more. Who was this man? His name was Dr. Edwin Landau Panagast. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. In case you didn't catch all of that, the caller identified himself as Dr. Bingguan Zhao. I researched him later and was able to verify that Dr. Zhao was a scientist, a biochemist, working out of Beijing. In the call, he claimed to have been conducting classified work in a secret facility when it experienced a sudden power loss. Dr. Zhao realized the power was being diverted to a sublevel storage area. That's where he discovered an old, sizable device that had seemingly turned itself on. It's a little hard to hear, but he says that this machine traced the formation of a transcendental bijection of space, what he later calls a wormhole. I'm sure my listener is familiar with this term, from pop culture at least, as being a theoretical portal to elsewhere. According to the machine, this wormhole formed here in Circle City, to which Dr. Zhao then traveled to investigate. He says he was looking for anyone who may have witnessed it, but found no one. That's why he called into my show when he did. Dr. Zhao was hoping someone had reported a sighting to me, but this was the first time I had heard of it. Dr. Zhao said this event would have been something big, Momentous was his word, but curiously, no one seems to have seen it. Near the end of the call, he speculates that the portal had opened at least once before, which I suppose makes sense. I mean, why else would someone have built a device to detect and track wormholes if they had never appeared before? As for its previous use, Dr. Zhao claims he found a yellowed note on the machine, the faded ink bearing the name of a man who Dr. Zhao, obviously brilliant in his own right, exalted as something more than a genius. And then, just as he recited this name, the station was hit with mysterious interference. That's what you heard at the end of that clip. To this day, we have yet to discover the source of that disruption. Let alone how it cut into our signal. Our engineer has been with the station since the 80s, and he'd never seen anything like it. My producer assumed it was faulty equipment, which is honestly a possibility. The station is very old and it hasn't had an update in maybe ever, but for me, the timing was just too perfect to have been a random malfunction. I am often trying to convince my callers that the crux of their seemingly supernatural experiences can be attributed to mere coincidence, but in this case I just couldn't take my own advice, especially because our signal came back just after we lost the call. When on the air again, I asked for Dr. Zhao to phone us back, but we never heard from him again. I have to wonder, did something happen to him? Was he silenced in a more permanent way than my show was? And just for speaking a name, why? What harm is there in the utterance of a single name? 
I actually began to research the name as soon as we went to the next commercial break that night, even before I researched Dr. Zhao himself. My producer thinks that I've been on the air with the crazies for too long, that I've been infected by their paranoia. She could be right about that. Or the whole thing could have been, if not a coincidence, an elaborate hoax. It wouldn't have been the first time in our show's history, but I don't think so. No, there was something to this. Someone, somewhere, didn't want us hearing anything more about that name. That name. Did you catch it? It's a bit hard to hear, I know, so I suppose I should repeat it for you. Edwin Lydell Pendergast. Huh. I half expected something to happen here in the recording booth when I said that. Before I go on with what I discovered and where my investigation took me, this is probably a good place to explain why this is a podcast and not a segment on my radio show. As has been proven already, a live broadcast can be cut off. But when you put something on the internet, it tends to spread and duplicate too quickly to be contained. Besides, what I uncovered in just those first couple of weeks made me realize that there was a huge story here. Too big for radio. That said, I am using the station and its equipment for recording this so that we get the best sound quality. My producer and our engineer have agreed to help me cut all this together and even put music to it all for the benefit of you, my audience. This is also an appropriate time to state that I am not a reporter. Not even close. Frankly, I have no idea what I'm doing. I work in radio, sure, but I've never studied journalism. But unlike reporters, people like to talk to me. They want to talk to me. That's why I'm so good at my job. I can get pretty much anyone to open up. It's basically my superpower. However, that power was going to be tested by the man who eventually, resignedly, became my partner in all of this. The supposed author of those books that I mentioned at the start. Remember those? Well, when I researched the name of Edwin Lydell Pendergast, the only place I found it was in a trilogy of novels. So, fiction. This wasn't even a real person, but the book's author was, and he was a local. My producer knew of him. Apparently everyone did. As a newcomer to Circle City, I was the only one not familiar with the scandal surrounding this man. My producer, Sylvia, actually warned me against reaching out to him. Her concern did not dissuade me. Quite the opposite. It piqued my curiosity, and I demanded to know everything. I could easily tell you what Sylvia related to me about the author, or what I found online myself, but I think I'll leave it to Adam Horowitz instead. Adam Horowitz runs the Atom Bomb Channel, a bi-weekly amateur investigation vlog based here in Circle City. Obviously, you won't be able to see the video, but it's essentially just a slideshow, various photos of the author in public. They're almost like those pictures you see of Bigfoot. There's a lot of wide angles of an unfocused figure striding away in the distance. For a guy who tries to keep a low profile, he sticks way out. He's very tall and wears mostly black, a lot of tattered denim mostly. He has a ducktail beard and his eyes are usually hidden under the wide brim of an older style hat. He basically dresses like a scarecrow. It's weird, but he's an author, so I guess it goes with the territory. In the one clear close-up image of him, I was surprised to find that he was about my age. I guess I'd expected him to be a much older man based on his vocation, and yeah, he wasn't bad looking. Anyway, with the permission of Mr. Horowitz, I'm going to play the audio from his vlog for you now, which is a very good summation of a now infamous author.
Hey guys, welcome back. I have something good for you today, but before we get started, do me a favor and subscribe to my channel. I've almost hit that 10,000 mark, and I'm really hoping to do so before the end of the month. And while you're at it, go ahead and hit that notification bell so you never miss a video. Alright, enough yammering already, on with the show. Today we're going to discuss Joseph Paul Leck, known more commonly as J.P. Leck, the self-described Circle City Collector. Working as an independent archivist, this man had, for nearly 10 years, published accounts that he claimed to have discovered. These accounts were incredible, first-hand eyewitness testimonies to otherworldly happenings, mostly based here in town. But he was dogged by rumors that he had actually authored these stories, and was just passing them off as true, what was assumed to be some sort of sales gimmick. But it was not until after he published a trilogy of novels that he was exposed as a fraud. Initially, he claimed they were works of fiction written by him, but when all three were both commercial and critical flops, he tried to backpedal and claim they were actually true. That was the beginning of the end for J.P. Leck's career as either a story collector or teller, whichever he truly was. The magazines and periodicals that ran his previous work cut all ties with him after the scandal, as did his professional peers. And if his reputation wasn't wrecked enough, he was even briefly eyed as a suspect in the triple murder of Margot Fletcher, a realtor, and Brian and Caitlin Polydor, two journalists with whom he worked for a time. It was not long after this that he retreated from public life. Nothing has been seen or heard of him since. No one is even sure if the Circle City Collector still lives here in Circle City. So that's J.P. Leck, who, as far as I knew, wasn't even in town anymore. But I really needed to talk to him, so I put on my deerstalker and started sleuthing. I didn't start with his three novels, but rather with the other stories that he claimed to have found over the years. The local magazines that Adam mentioned, they had back issues, which I was able to get my hands on. I read as many as I could, looking for clues about the man. You see, he had provided contextual and supplemental information about each story he published. He would research them and try his best to validate each, typically failing because of the supposed supernatural quality of each account. In his earliest work, he was very guarded, but JP began to reveal more and more about himself in later publications, as they became increasingly personal to him. In the final story he published before he found or wrote those novels, he revealed that he lived in what was once a bank, and that he used its vault to house his collection of fantastical stories. Sounds pretty far-fetched, I know. And it was probably just another colorful lie if he really was the con man Circle City assumed he was. But I was determined to find out for myself. I was maybe the only person left in town who was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Remember, that's my job after all, to listen to unbelievable stories. So after a whole lot of digging and legwork that I will not bore you with, I discovered Lex's secret lair. To maintain his privacy, I will not reveal the location, and don't bother trying to find it either. From the outside, you would never guess that the place had once been a bank. It's a dilapidated, nondescript structure nestled into others just like it. I didn't know what to expect when I showed up completely unannounced and knocked on the door, but I did record it. Okay, I think this is the one. Here goes. you want. Okay, let's pause here so I can explain my reaction. The door was torn open and there was this... I described him as tall earlier, but he's even taller in person. Maybe more so to me since I'm a lowly 5'2". He's so tall that when he first opened the door, he looked around, then down, to where I stood below him on the stoop. We just sort of stared at each other, neither one of us saying a word. 
In my earlier description of JP, I mentioned that he was rather rough-looking. He was even more so now. His beard and hair had grown out. His clothes were disheveled. This was a man who'd stopped caring. His gaze hardened as he waited for me to explain myself. I had honestly forgotten why I was there, alarmed as I was by this giant hermit. It was something I heard in the background that snapped me out of it. There was a TV on in the bank somewhere, but when I asked about what he was watching, he turned and switched it off with the remote in his hand. On this episode of The True Weleavers, Danny, Kurt, and Aaron journey to the small town of Spargo, California to explore the ruins of the Strangledeep Manor and its history of ghostly goings-on. What will they find inside the walls of this legendary haunting? Is that? What do you want? I, uh, was... Are you J.P. Leck, the Circle City collector, author of... What do you want? Don't worry, I'm not a reporter or anything, I'm... The host of Circle City Supernatural, yes, I know. Yeah, how... I recognized your voice. You're recording? Is this for your show? No, it's for a podcast I'm working on. How did you find me? Tenacity. Can I come in? I need to talk to you. About? Important stuff. Goodbye. About Edwin Lydell Pendergast. You read the books? No. Someone called into my show and said that name, only to be mysteriously cut off. When I researched him, it led me to your books, which you said that they were true. Are they? If so, maybe we can prove it. Maybe we can prove you're not a... What, a complete fraud? Look, I have no interest in clearing my name or helping you in any way. Please do not come here again. Okay, so clearly I had come at JP with the wrong incentive. He truly did not care that he would be forever remembered as a charlatan, or pretended not to care anyway. I'd have to think of something else he wanted in exchange for his time. And then I did. I gave it a couple of days, then returned to the bank with this new offer, but getting him to hear it proved rather challenging. I told you that I'm not interested. Please stop coming here. Wait, listen, I have- Look, lady, I'm trying to help you out here. The last time others got involved in this thing, it ended very badly for them. You're talking about the Polydors, those journalists who were murdered? Like I said the other day, I'm not a reporter, JP. Please just give me a few minutes. I think we can help each other. I told you, I do not care what people think of me. Yes, I know. That's why I have something different to offer you. Like what? I've been reading your early work, the stories you collected and published before you wrote those books. I discovered the books, and what of it? You talked extensively about how you came upon those stories. You had to hunt them down on your own in the beginning. But then, when you started to build a following, you called on your readers to find them. You had a P.O. box that they'd mail them to, and that worked much better, right? It did. So how many more people will hear you with this podcast? You've talked about stories, and even evidence for those stories, sitting in basements and attics, boxed away and buried. People have these things and may not even realize it. If they hear this, they may dig these things out and drag them into the light of day. This podcast could lead to a whole wealth of new stories for you to publish. Maybe it could be a second chance for you. I don't do that kind of work anymore, and I don't plan to return to it. Okay, dude, settle down with the whole, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. (laughs) Look, I can't help you. Please just go. What's your problem? I came here doing my best to show you that I'm serious, and you just blow me off. Is it me? You don't trust me? Frankly, no. As a rule, I never trust a beautiful woman who repeatedly comes to my door expressing interest in my work. I only know you from the radio, and an on-air personality, it's rarely that of the actual host. So how am I supposed to know what your real angle is in any of this? So, you think I'm beautiful? I, 
I didn't say that. You know I'm recording, right? <sighs> Would you just go, please? Fine, I'm going, but JP? What? Try not to fall in love with me. <laughs> I want to keep this professional, okay? I d- <clears throat> Look, there is no this. We are done after today. I do not expect to ever see you again, okay? Goodbye. So that was that. He wanted nothing to do with me or my investigation. But you know what? I went back the next day, and he let me in. Superpower! I will give you one interview, and then you leave me be. Agreed? Oh, totally. 100%. Fine. Come in. I followed him into a vestibule, which led out into what was once the lobby of the bank, but it didn't look like one anymore. In some long-ago time, JP had turned it into a private study. He had warmed the place as best as he could. Heavy drapes hung over the front windows that looked out into the street, and a series of faded rugs lay sometimes overlapping across the linoleum floor. The place would have been respectable if not for the mess. He'd not cleaned his dwelling in some time. I pretended not to notice. Then I saw the television that I had heard yesterday. It was strapped to an old AV cart, the kind they used to wheel into your classroom for a video presentation in school. It wasn't often used. It probably sat in the nearest closet most of the time. I could tell my host was more of a reader. How could I tell? Towering bookcases were shoulder to shoulder against every wall, their shelves double stacked and buckling. It was a private library to rival any other. I was amazed and found myself drifting over to have a look at some of the old volumes. I ran my finger along the spines, pausing on. Revel Tersis. Is that Latin? Do not touch that! Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to shout, I'm sorry. It's just those books are very old, very fragile. I understand. Hands to myself. So, did you want some coffee or something? Please. Cream and sugar, if you have it. JP had a kitchenette sectioned off from the rest of the room, and he disappeared into this for a couple of minutes. While he was gone, I took a pair of lapel mics from my bag. If we were going to have a proper interview, I wanted the best sound quality. JP returned with a steaming mug in each hand, and I followed him to a couple of threadbare armchairs that faced one another. There was a coffee table between them, and he set the cups down before dusting off the second chair. He glanced at me as he patted down the cushion, a little embarrassed, I think. I was obviously his first guest in quite some time. Before we begin, I'd like to use these lapel mics. That's fine. Go ahead. I moved over to JP. This was the closest I had yet been to him. It was a little awkward, even more so because of our vast difference in height. Without much thought, I stepped up onto the coffee table. He was surprised by this, but said nothing as I attached the mic to his vest, which I could better reach from up here. When done, I glanced up and found myself face to face with him. We locked eyes. I'm not going to say we had a moment, but... I don't know. It was moment E. But as moments do, it quickly passed. He offered me a gentlemanly hand and helped me down. Then we took our seats. So how does this work? What, the podcast? Well, I'm recording our conversation now, and later I'll record some narration on my own, then cut it all together so that the listener gets an idea of what's happening. A word picture, as they called it in the yesteryear of radio. I'll probably also edit in some music and some drones for atmosphere. You know, to keep people interested. Like this. You hear that? Uh, no. (laughs) Of course not. I'll put it in there in post-production. Oh wait, I really like this part here. Ooh, and then it hits heavy. Mm, Yeah, that rocks. (laughs) JP half-smiled. I'm not sure if he was actually amused by my offbeat humor, or if he was merely being polite. I'd like to start by playing you the call that I mentioned the other day. The one that came into my show. Yeah, sure, go ahead. I had the clip on my phone and played it for JP. As he listened, he steepled his hands thoughtfully. When it was done, I told him what little I had discovered about Dr. Zhao. So what do you think? 
I'd like to say something before we get into this. Please. Listen, I feel like I should warn you yet again. You have to be so very careful with this kind of thing. And I ask you to consider just how far you are willing to go, because there will come a point where you cross the line and force their hand. Are you talking about whoever cut off Dr. Zhao's call? You really haven't read the books. I have not. So, who are we talking about? The government? The shadow government? The reptilian government on the dark side of the moon? <laughs> You're talking about some kind of Illuminati group, right? Essentially, yeah, although they're without name. They're a cabal, an ancient secret society, and they will remove anyone who proves to be a threat to them. You seem to have been at odds with them, and you're still here. That's because I've been thoroughly discredited. To off me now would be only to validate my work. No, all they have to do is absolutely nothing. I'm not a problem for them anymore, so long as I stay quiet. Is your talking to me now going to put you in danger? Not just me anymore. See, I'm already on their radar because of my publications. But you might be there, too, because of your show. Because Zhao called me? Yes, but they were tuning in before that. They've been monitoring Circle City Supernatural long before you were even there. From the start, possibly. Why? Because there is something special about this place? In the last story you published, the one I used to find you, this was heavily implied. You think the powers that be are watching Circle City and that they have nefarious plans for it? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that at the moment, you and I are both blips on their radar. But if you push forward with this podcast... We become much bigger blips? Indeed. And I just wanted you to be aware of that and know what it could mean before proceeding. I'm still here. <sighs> Very well. Alright, for starters, the facility Zhao was working in, where he found the device, it's not in China as you might have assumed. It's actually here, in the Southwest. Well, under the Southwest. It's a not-so-secret secret facility out in the desert. Like some Area 51 stuff? Sure, but the Bunker of Babel is how I refer to it. The what? It's a nickname for the facility, coined by someone who had been there long ago. Is that from your novels? It's from the manuscripts, yes, it is. The way he always corrected my terminology told me that JP was serious about his non-authorship of the books. He was either a liar, as most people thought, or he was, as a few others suspected, a madman who actually believed the things he claimed. So why would a Chinese national be given access to a top-secret American facility? Wouldn't that be, I don't know, a big no-no? State secrets and all that? It's only puzzling if you don't believe in a secret society that operates behind and through governments, a global oligarchy that runs the world from the shadows. They share resources among their chapters. Chapters? Different parts of the same whole. You see, if the North American chapter of the Cabal needed, say, a master biochemist for some research, well, the Asian chapter would loan them one. Zhao. That's why he was stateside. So did he know? Most likely not. The majority of people who serve the Cabal do their bidding completely unaware. They think they are simply government or military employees. The Cabal keep their underlings compartmentalized so that no one but the actual members see how it all fits together. But sometimes one of the lower-level people stumble onto something they're not supposed to, like Dr. Zhao discovering the device. Exactly. His slipping away from the facility and journeying cross-country to investigate would have been bad enough. <laughs> but to then go on the radio talking about all this? I really don't think it ended well for him. You think he's dead? I'd honestly be very surprised if he was not. Hence my stringent warning before we started talking. And here we are, talking. Hmm. <laughs> you're very brave. I'm only brave if what you're saying is true, which so far I have to say is pretty out there. <laughs> oh, you haven't heard the half of it yet. 
So you know about the facility. What can you tell me about the device? Zhao was correct about its intended function. It was built to detect and trace the formation of wormholes here on Earth. So did this Pendergast guy build the device? No, no, it was built for him, to find him. You see, its architect was a contemporary of Pendergast's, a rival, I should say. Friedrich Volkenhorst was a particle physicist who belonged to the Nazis throughout World War II, but he was captured by the Allies at the close of the war. As so many German scientists were, he was brought here, where he changed his name to Frederick Hardesty. Officially, he was put to work for the U.S. government, but really he took his orders from... From the cabal who operate in the guise of governments. Yes, very good, you're getting it. You said the device was built to find Pendergast. Could you explain that? Before Hardesty belonged to the cabal, Pendergast did, serving in much the same capacity as a researcher and developer of the most cutting-edge experimental science. But Pendergast was to eventually defect from the organization. And he didn't just escape them, he fought them, becoming their chief antagonist. You see, he learned the truth about the secret society, about their ultimate plan for the world, and he endeavored to stop them. So the Cabal hunted him, but Pendergast proved elusive. You see, he had something in his possession, an ancient something that let him open portals to, let's call it, elsewhere, which made it hard to get a hold of him, as you can imagine. An ancient something? What are we talking about? An orb. An orb? It's been described as a small, spherical vessel, one that holds an unknowable power. And if you can figure out how the orb functions, well, this unknowable power is released and will create a way out of this world. Uh-huh. And where did this orb come from? That is a whole other can of worms. Speaking of worms... Are you saying it was this ancient vessel that opened the wormhole here in Circle City? It could be nothing else. You're talking about the formation of wormholes like they're actually possible. I had a professor on the show a while back and we discussed this very thing. He said the energy required to bend space would be, I mean, it's theoretical for a reason. So what does that leave? Magic? Pendergast once said that magic was just a term people give to sciences and other phenomena that they cannot understand just yet. Oh, and this Dr. Zhao? He was very much right about Pendergast, by the way. About him being more than a genius? Yes. His was the greatest mind in world history. He did not create the orb, no, but he understood it as no one had in ages. You see, the functionality of the vessel had been lost to time. Yet he and he alone learned its secrets, then used its power to travel beyond the known realm of mankind. So why has no one ever heard of him? If he was such a big deal, why is the only place his name can be found in some novels? I'm sorry, manuscripts that you wrote. That I published. How do you account for that? It's his punishment. When he betrayed the Cabal, they undertook a crusade to erase him from history, burying all of his accomplishments or assigning them to others. As far as I can tell, the manuscripts are all that remain of his life. They are his only legacy. Could you tell me more about the books themselves? Just a quick overview for our listeners. I think that may help clear up some of this. Each book was written by someone who had encountered Pendergast and chronicled the time they spent with him. There is the detective's testimony, the soldier's testimony, and the magician's testimony. They were recorded in 1899, 1920, and 1945 respectively. These men traveled with Pendergast at different portions of his life. The first manuscript features Pendergast as a young man. The second occurs years later when the great scientist is middle-aged and the last one tells of the end of his life when he is very old. Interesting. Huh? What? What's interesting? So this man just so happened to encounter people along the way who wanted to tell his story? It's a little coincidental, don't you think? Well, not really. 
According to the manuscripts, each of Pendergast's chroniclers were actually supposed to meet him. So, fate? Or the intelligent power behind such a concept. Is that something you believe in? Yes, it is. So is that what's happening here, with you and me? No, nothing is happening here. This is it, remember? After this, we're done and you stop coming here as agreed. Did I agree to that? <sighs> I think we're done here. We're done with part one. I'll be back tomorrow for part two. That is not what we... You're just going to keep knocking until I let you in, aren't you? Oh, shush. You're enjoying this just as much as I am. I'm really not... Why do you think that? Because in all the time we were talking, neither one of us took a single sip of coffee. Oh. Right. Huh. Besides, I'm pretty sure that you left me with more questions than answers. It is a lot to take in, I admit. Oh, here's your microphone. As I packed the lapel mics into my bag again, J.P. strode over to a sizable stainless steel cabinet. I looked on as he unlocked and pulled open the doors. Inside was row after row of unsold copies of his books. He took one of each and brought them over to me. Here, just in case you'd rather hear the story from those who were there. Thanks, but I'm enjoying hearing it from you. Wow, these covers are beautiful. I actually had the designer base them on the original manuscripts. The cover of each book had been illustrated to look like an old diary or journal complete with tears and fading. All three books also bore an emblem on the front. The first book had a spiral, the second a compass rose, and the third a sun or star. Pendergast's final chronicler inherited the other manuscripts before writing his own. Once finished, he initiated a handoff policy for all the books. Handoff policy? Book bearers, he called them. The magician realized that the books were too important to keep together, lest they all be captured by the cabal and destroyed. The books detail their secret plans for the world, so the books were broken up and passed around to spread the truth quietly and safely. But you reunited them? Yes, I did. And then you published them for everyone to read? Yes. Why did you put them out there as fiction under your own name if you knew them to be true? Recanting that claim ruined your reputation. Yeah, that. I thought I was being clever. People love fiction, especially if it is presented as fact. Your podcast? It'll be listened to in the same way. I figured I could just present the truth as fiction to get the stories into as many hands as possible. There's also the content of each book to consider. The very little that I've told you today is difficult to believe, right? Well, it only gets more unbelievable from here. But my plan to get the books read didn't work. They were ignored as just more bargain bin fantasy. So I tried to come clean. I expected a backlash from my plagiarism, but the reaction, while severe, was not what I thought. And I should have seen it coming. All the old rumors about my authoring those previously collected stories were turned in manifold. That was the final nail in the coffin of J.P. Leck. Can I be frank with you? I insist upon it. If you're not a fraud, if you really believe everything you've told me today is true, then there is another possible explanation. I struggled for a diplomatic phrasing, but failed. Fortunately, J.P. saw where I was going with this and said it for me. <laughs> that I'm a lunatic? It's okay, you're not the first to wonder. So what do you say to that? Is it crazy to think that you are the most sane person in the world? To trust your own judgment above everyone else's? Uh, kinda. Oh, well, then maybe I am a little crazy. I suddenly looked down JP with new eyes. His appearance, his home, his reputation, everything he had just told me. Maybe he was completely out of his mind. And even though he was cleared... Wasn't this guy once considered a suspect in a triple murder? I was unnerved and started subtly moving toward the door. Well, I'm gonna head out. Need to grab a nap before the show tonight. Are you coming back tomorrow? Uh, yeah, maybe. 
Thanks for speaking with me, JP. I appreciate it. I stuffed the books into my bag and was almost out the door when he spoke again. Lindsay. It was the first time he'd said my name, and it, uh, I don't want to say it startled me. No, it, it wasn't a bad reaction. It was actually, I don't know. And when I looked back at him, my feelings of unease were already fading. Yeah? No one calls me JP. They never have. It's just what I used for my work. Joseph is fine, or Joe, whichever you like. I think I like Joseph. Is that what your friends call you? It was, yeah. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. I didn't catch it at the time, only when listening back to the recording later, but he used the past tense in his answer. Did you hear it? Joseph is what his friends used to call him. His public undoing had been his private one as well. I thought of him dusting off that second chair. He was so alone. My heart broke for the guy. I took the books with me to work that night and flipped through them during my show. My producer kept waving me back to the mic from the control room, but I couldn't help myself. I'm a little embarrassed by just how noticeable my distraction was. I actually pulled the clip from that night's show. Have a listen. Welcome to Circle City Supernatural. What do you have for us? I want to talk about a conspiracy against the conspiracists here for a minute here. Those full hat-wearing types. Now it's supposed to block the aliens, the aliens from reading your thoughts, right? That's what they say, anyway. But what if it does the very opposite? What if it only gives them a better look at your brain, increasing the signal or what have you? Like when you, you wrap the ends of your, your antenna with full to get a better picture on TV? Remember doing that? Yeah, sure. Same concept. Now what if the aliens, or the government, or whoever, has been spreading this misinformation about full hats so they can better read the thoughts of those who know they're up to? Get it? It's just so obvious. Wake up, sheeple. Yeah, that's... that's really interesting. You're probably right about everything you said. Uh, let's do a commercial break. Be right back with more, you know, weird stuff. I had my field recorder in the booth with me. I grabbed it to record a note and ended up catching Sylvia, my producer, coming in to scold me for my unprofessionalism. Keep in mind this was before she agreed to help me with this podcast. Be sure to ask Joseph about the book's repeated mentions of the Elsewhere World. I know we're an AM radio in the AM hours, but if you could at least pretend to be involved in your own show, that'd be great. Sorry, I got distracted. Lex books? I thought these were out of print. Where'd you get them? From the man himself. He still lives in town? I was waiting to tell you. Waiting for what? Until after he'd spoken to me. I wasn't sure he would, but, well, I spent the afternoon with him. I'm going back tomorrow, too. You mean later today? Until I've slept, it's not tomorrow yet. So what's he like? Honestly, he's not as bad as everyone thinks. Con men never seem to be. I don't think he's trying to con me. Actually, I'm the one who intruded upon him. Just be careful, Lindsay. I don't want you getting pulled into his schemes. <laughs> his schemes? Really? Shut up. You know what I meant. I'll be careful. That's all I ask. Okay, we're almost back from commercial. You have Gladys Fernsby up next. Ugh. I know, I know. I've had her on hold for over an hour, hoping she'd hang up. But she won't get off the line. Is Mr. Snuggles quoting Nietzsche again? I wish that cat would just die. We'd all be better off. <laughs> oh, this town. I returned to the bank the following day, eager to get back into it with Joseph. The familiar aroma of fresh coffee and old books greeted me at the door. But when I entered the lobby, my surroundings were suddenly very foreign. Joseph had tidied up the place, 
and when he greeted me, I saw that my host had not stopped with his home. He looked rather spruce, or as close to spruce as he could get. He'd trimmed his beard, straightened his clothes. He looked good, but I knew better than to mention that fact. Drawing any attention to the effort he'd made would result in some awkward embarrassment on his part. So after some small talk, I attached our lapel mics and we took our places in the armchairs again to pick up where we'd left off yesterday. Did you start reading the books yet? I thumbed through them last night. That's a lot of long words and old-timey speak. (laughs) Yes, the purple prose is a common complaint. The antiquated writing style is not something a modern audience can always appreciate, but I, I absolutely love it. Oh, I need no convincing that you're a written word kind of guy, but I'm more of a spoken word kind of girl. Are there audiobooks? That'd be more my speed. Not sure anyone would actually want to listen to my droning mumbles for an entire trilogy. Oh, I don't know about that. I listened back to yesterday's recording, and you have a decent voice. You're very sweet to say. Well, now that I've got you all buttered up... Yes? Don't be offended, but I may not actually read the books. Or even listen to them if that becomes an option someday. This podcast is going to be for the uninitiated. People who have not, or who may never read them. So I should probably stay just as ignorant. To explore the mystery on their behalf, you know? No, yeah, that's... I get that. It makes sense. Although, while I was skimming them last night at the station, I kept seeing mentions of the Elsewhere world. What is that exactly? Right. Yes. Well, I suppose it's as good as any place to start our second talk. Just be warned, it gets complicated. Complicated? How very on-brand for you. It actually has three distinct meanings. As you said, the term appears repeatedly across all three books. The Elsewhere world can refer to an Earth-like planet that is out in the universe somewhere. It can also refer to the unseen realm that exists within that universe, what we would call another dimension, or the spirit realm. And lastly, it can refer to the tangential timeline this universe exists in presently. Wow. We're five minutes in and my head hurts already. Okay, let's break this down. So that first meaning, you're talking about a literal alien planet that's like our own. And the magic orb we discussed yesterday, the wormhole it creates? Takes you to this world, yes. Okay, got it. And the second usage of the Elsewhere world is for another dimension, aka the spirit realm. I got pretty familiar with that in my first couple of weeks of hosting Circle City Supernatural. Alright, check and check. Now, as for that last meaning, the tangential timeline thing, are we talking like an alternate reality kind of deal? Precisely. Now get this. It was created when Pendergast's mortal enemy traveled backward in time to find the orb. And now we're into time travel. Because, of course we are. Are you sure you wouldn't rather just read these books? It's nearly impossible to distill hundreds of pages of text into a quick overview. Please just try. (sighs) Very well. Okay, the traveler's journey to the past, it disrupted the natural structure of time, and a splinter reality was created as a result. You, me, and everyone else is living in an accidental continuity, and we have Clarence Grindle to blame for it. I'm sorry, did you say Grendel? (laughs) No, no, Grindel, Grindel, um, G-R-I-N-D-L-E, not G-R-E-N-D-E-L. But as the villain of the piece, you might as well spell it that way. And who is this Grindel guy? You said he was Pendergast's enemy. He was another member of the Cabal. He was adopted by them as a young boy when he was discovered to have certain abilities. You mean powers? Yes, and very unsurprisingly, the Cabal wished to exploit them. So what could he do? Fly? Turn invisible? Shoot lasers from his eyes? No, nothing so obvious. He could take 
he could take like a mental hold on those around him, both people and animals. It was eventually discovered that his consciousness was actually extending beyond his body to do this. After it was realized how his ability worked, he undertook years of training to completely dissociate his consciousness from his corporeal form. Once he could do that, he could move about what they called the astral plane, what we would call another dimension of the spirit realm. And inside of it, there was no limits to where or when he could go. So he didn't get into a time machine to go back. He, he what, mentally went back? Grindel catapulted his consciousness backward into ancient times, yes. He possessed another man in the way an evil spirit would. Grindel could make full use of this man's mind and body. They call this practice usurping. You said he went back for the orb, right? Why? Grindel made his journey just after World War II. Mankind was now in the atomic age. It was clear that we could now destroy the world if we wanted to. Well, those who run the world wanted an escape plan in case that eventuality ever came about. The Cabal knew about the orb and what it could do, but not where it was. The vessel was utterly lost to history. There was no finding it in their own time. But they knew exactly where to look for it in a previous time? Yes, there was ample historical evidence linking it to ancient Egypt. Wait. If it was just his mind or spirit or whatever, how did Grindel bring it back with him? No, he didn't. He couldn't have. The plan was for Grindel to locate and hide the orb where it would never be found. Then, upon returning to his own body in time, he would know exactly where to dig it up. That's incredible. But there were complications. He did, in fact, find and hide the orb in the past, but on his return trip, well, he became lost and got stuck about a half century shy of his own time and on the wrong side of the world. For lack of a better phrase, he crash-landed in the body of a little boy whose mental ability was either diminished or not yet matured enough for Grindel to make full use of his powers again. Just as it was when he was a little boy himself, Grindel could extend his consciousness from his own body, sure, but he could not become untethered from it. He was marooned, a castaway in the sea of time and space. Couldn't he just kill his host body? Wouldn't that eject his spirit? Very good, yes. However, those were the early days of usurping, and it was not known what the outcome of such would be. Grindel could have easily gone tumbling off into the infinite void, never finding another body again, let alone his own body. And so he was stranded in the late 1890s in Eastern Europe. Bad luck. Grindel didn't think so, at least for long. He thought it was meant to be. How so? Uh, that answer is a really long one, but I, I guess I'll do my best to try to abridge it. So, the books that I gave you yesterday, the first one with the spiral, that tells the story of Pendergast's first meeting Grindel back in 1899 in Eastern Europe, specifically in a vast forgotten wilderness that is enclosed by an offshoot of the Carpathian mountain chain, what the locals call the Land of Phantoms. Sounds ominous. It's hell on earth. It's a place where inhuman things have congregated over the eons. Say what? But when Grindel arrived, he used his power to enslave the simple minds of the monsters, and they became his minions. I'm sorry, huh? Monsters? Oh, don't worry. We'll get back to all that later, I promise. The point is, the spiral book was temporarily in the possession of the Cabal when Grindel was a child, and he read it. Well, most of it anyway. He was actually stopped from finishing the book, but what Grindel did read was about himself in the past, meeting Pendergast. So when the events of the book actually occurred in his life, Grindel knew it was meant to be. He thought it was fate. Grindel told Pendergast about the orb and where to find it. Pendergast was to finish Grindel's mission for him and deliver the orb to their shared masters. But Pendergast, as I told you yesterday, claimed it for himself and turned against the Cabal. Wow, so all of that and Grindel still failed to get the orb. Yes, but he did manage to accomplish something. 
something big. And this is where it gets a little trippy, so stick with me. Oh, this. This is where it gets trippy. Okay, cool. While in the ancient past of Egypt, before he departed on his doomed journey home, Grindel amassed followers, people who knew he was special. A cult, really. And they remained together even after he left them. They slowly, but persistently, gained power and influence over their generations, spreading to the four corners of the globe, forming a secret society. No way! You're telling me Grindel actually created the Cabal? And by accident? The same way he created this alternate reality? Yes, in his own time, Grindel was merely a member of the Cabal. Yet upon venturing back, he learned that he was actually the progenitor of it. So what happened to him after he encountered Pendergast? His host vessel was killed by one of Pendergast's companions. That was the ending Grindel was kept from reading by a man who reclaimed the book from him, from the Cabal, and returned it to Pendergast. And if Grindel had finished the book, he likely would not have told Pendergast what he did, and all that had transpired afterward would not have. Wait. You said he was in the body of a little boy. Who could kill a child, even if possessed by an evil time traveler? That's something else we'll definitely get back to. Anyway, fortunately for Grindel, when his host body died, he did not go flinging off into the unknown, as feared, but did in fact return to his own body in his own time. And he did so only to encounter Pendergast yet again. For Pendergast, it had been decades since his first meeting with Grindel, but to the time traveler, it was mere moments. The two of them had yet another titanic struggle, but the great scientist once more defeated the time traveler. However, it was Grindel's own body that was destroyed this time, meaning that he had none to go back to once his spirit was ejected. He exists only as consciousness now, a spirit, an evil one. He was the man who made himself a demon. Wow. So what happened to him? Grindel must have known that if he tried to go back and change things, he'd only create yet another tangential timeline and that it would likely repeat the events of his previous reality. So instead, he hurled himself into the future. This was back in the 40s, right? So the future for him would be... Now, yes. So you think he's here in our time? The final manuscript actually theorizes that he planned to go further down the timeline than where you and I sit presently, but I believe he was interrupted along the way. And just as it was during his first journey, he fell short of his intended destination by nearly a half century. So he is here. And now. He must have found the orb, right? That's why the wormhole was opened? He finally accomplished his mission. No, no. According to the manuscripts, the vessel was buried with Pendergast on the other world when he died. It would have been impossible for anyone on Earth to reach, even Grindel, even as a spirit. I mean, theoretically, he could reach the other planet via the astral plane, but he'd have to know where it was in the universe, which no one really does. Oh, okay. Oh man, I thought I had it there. <laughs> yeah, that's how all this works. As soon as you think you know where it's going, it makes a hard turn the other direction. Why was the orb left on the Elsewhere world? To protect it. The device Zhao discovered, it was used to find Pendergast, and it worked. The Cabal captured the orb. While it was in their possession, they tried to invade the other planet, to take it over for themselves. Fortunately, they were stopped, and Pendergast was able to wrestle the orb back from them before his death. So you're saying that if the orb was used, it was used on the other world? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Yes, it must have been someone from over there, but I can't imagine why they would have opened the doorway. Who do you mean exactly? Who from over there would have used it? Are we talking about, like, aliens? The other world? It has all its own people. Pendergast met and befriended them in his travels. They are not unlike humans, with some notable exceptions. Like what? For starters, they have wings. I'm sorry? Are you still sure about not reading the books? I can't believe you would walk away from something like this. If any of this is true, it- Will fundamentally change how you see the world around you? Yes. 
Yes, it will. Scandal notwithstanding, how could you leave this behind? Because I wanted an answer. And I got it. It just wasn't what I thought. What answer? What were you looking for? Something that I did not find. Something that does not exist. Interesting. So what was J.P. Leck really after for all those years? You were the Circle City Collector. Why did you collect stories instead of baseball cards or stamps? What were you looking for in stories that you couldn't find anywhere else? Well? The perfect ending. What? What do you mean? I was obsessed with stories because I thought my life was a story, that each of our lives is a story, and I wanted mine to have the perfect ending. But for that to happen, I had to know if it was even possible. I really thought that finding and publishing the Pendergast manuscripts was my perfect ending, that I was shining a light into the shadows, exposing the cabal, and that they would be undone. But the only one undone by the books was you. Yes, exactly. But that's assuming the story ends there. You're still here, still going. It's not done yet. Yes, I'm still here. Still dragging on. <laughs> Wait, so you expected to be killed by the Cabal? Was your perfect ending some sort of martyrdom? No, nothing so dramatic. Death is simply the punctuation at the end of a sentence. And you wanted yours to be an exclamation point, huh? Don't misunderstand. I didn't have a death wish or anything. But I was ready to face the consequences. You were ready to sacrifice yourself to defeat a global superpower. Delusions of grandeur, yes. I'm well aware of my mistake now. I admit to it with more than just a little embarrassment. Chalk it up to youthful naivete. So you've just been wallowing in self-pity ever since? Because you didn't get your perfect ending. Life isn't perfect. Why would it end any differently? I thought that if I could be a certain way, follow a certain path, then whenever death came for me, I would be found doing right doing good, and that must be the key to a perfect ending. In the stories I had collected, but especially in the Pendergast manuscripts, there were people who made me think it possible. People who were unimaginably heroic. People who battled back the darkness at all times and at all costs. Honestly, for as outlandish as these stories are, the only thing that ever made me doubt their authenticity were some of these people. People like that don't really exist. At least, not anymore they don't. But maybe they can again. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to feel like you and me, that we were supposed to meet after all. Like it was fate? Or an intelligent power behind fate? Look, there's still hope. Maybe a perfect ending is out there somewhere for J.P. Luck. There isn't. How can you be so sure? I just know. Yeah, but how? Because I found the truth. <sighs> okay, this is getting annoying. What truth? Joseph went quiet on me. He took off the lapel mic and set it on the coffee table. I did the same, assuming our interview was over, but he just sat there, staring hard into vacancy. I'd soon learn that his brow narrows frightfully when he's concentrating. He looks angry when, really, he's just deep in thought, but I hadn't learned this about him yet, and he was kind of freaking me out, so much so that when he rose up suddenly, I flinched and leapt to my own feet. Yesterday, you were looking at one of my books. Do you remember? I remember you yelling at me. You can look at it now. Um, okay. Does it have something to do with what we're talking about? Is there yet another manuscript that's involved? He watched as I returned to that bookcase, quickly finding the spine of the old tome from yesterday. Revel Tursus. What I had thought to be Latin. Looking closer, I realized it was, in fact, English. Just backward. Revel Tursus. Secret lever. Oh, that's adorable. I grabbed the book and tried to pull it from among the others, but it did not fully slide off the shelf and jerked back into place. I startled at that. Then again at the sudden movement of the bookcase itself. I heard a hidden mechanism at work as the bookcase, which was actually a door, slid back, then swung in, revealing a stairwell that descended into total darkness. 
What is this? The door to the basement. I thought it best to keep it concealed in case my home was ever invaded. I actually borrowed this trick from our old buddy Pendergast. Should you have shown me that? I mean, this will go into the episode. Everyone will know. That's not a problem. I'll just switch books on the lever. Even if someone finds this place, it would take them a year to try every book in my library. Just don't mention which bookcase this is. Got it. So what's down there? The truth about the perfect ending. Joseph stepped around me and descended the stairwell into the bowels of the building, where he vanished into the shadows. I followed after, but paused when I lost sight of my host. Just as I was about to call out, however, the basement was suddenly aglow. Bulkhead sconces cast their light from the walls on either side. The tall man was revealed to be standing beside a sizable knife switch he'd just thrown. I came forward and looked around. The space was not as expansive as the building overhead. In fact, it was comparatively narrow. To the left was a rickety work table with various research materials spread across it. Clamped to the edge was one of those adjustable armatures with a lighted magnifying glass at the end. The bulb was burnt out and the lens cracked. Behind the table was an old reversible chalkboard. An actual chalkboard, not a smart board or even a whiteboard. On the right side of the room was a computer station of sorts with various glowing monitors, all of them laughably outdated. The place was like the Batcave if Bruce Wayne had been poor. The concrete floor and walls were cold and confining, but the basement did have a surprisingly high ceiling. A vaulted ceiling, Joseph said, explaining that this was how vaults had gotten their name originally. It had totally slipped my mind that this building had been a bank once upon a time. Earlier, before I had come here and met Joseph, you'll remember that I doubted his claim about safeguarding his work in an old bank vault. Well, there was no doubting it now. Looming large at the other end of the chamber, the vault's steel door stood facing me. When Joseph moved toward it, I followed. As we neared, he told me that the thing had been built right into the structure itself. The building's owner, Joseph's landlord, had purchased the bank at auction with the idea of leasing it to a business, but the vault had proven to be an unattractive quality for the building. People feared getting locked in it, apparently. The landlord looked into having the vault dismantled and removed, but an engineer had told him that to do so would be to destroy the building. This made any kind of commercial development of the space nearly impossible, and it's why Joseph was able to rent it as cheaply as he did. The bank and its vault were now 100 years old, but only the latter looked like it could go 100 more. My host chuckled, saying the engineer had told his landlord that this place could be hit by a nuclear blast and the vault alone would survive. Joseph had said all of this to me, but only my recorder was hearing him. I listened back to it later for this information, but in that moment my attention was wrapped on the vault door and the weird message that had been painted across the steel. The Endless Elsewhere. My host eventually glanced over at me and saw where my focus lay, nodding, understanding. He went to the vault door and, with his back to me, worked the double combination lock. I heard the dial spin back and forth. Next, he took hold of the big wheel in the center of the door and gave it a couple of stiff turns. Lastly, and with a glance back at me, Joseph grabbed the handle and wrenched the massive door from its place. It was rather mythic to behold such an imposing man slowly dragging open this titanic door. Maybe it was all the talk of portals to other realms? But when that vault was opened to me, I felt like I'd left the place I'd known for somewhere new. The walls of that vault were lined in hundreds of thin rectangular drawers, behind which must be safety deposit boxes. It was in these that Joseph kept the documents that he'd spent years collecting. My host stepped into the vault, then waved me to his side. Are all of these filled with... No, not at all. There's still room for plenty more. Well, maybe you're not done after all. So where is it? The truth about the perfect ending. You're standing in it. Huh? The perfect ending does not exist because there will never be an end 
Undoubtedly, there is a story being told, and while all of our mortal lives belong to it, we are mere, I don't know, subplots, I guess. It did not begin, and it certainly will not end with any of us. Pendergast and Grindel, two of the greatest men to ever live, locked in their tremendous struggle across time and space, realize this in their final confrontation. And that's why it says what it does on the door. Joseph went deeper into the vault, all the way to the back. But instead of reaching for any of the deposit boxes around him, he knelt to the floor. There was a seam I had not noticed before. He produced a pocket knife and used the blade to pry up a small panel, revealing a hidden compartment. I moved to his back and leaned over his shoulder. There lay the pride of his collection, the original Pendergast manuscripts. There was the first book, which had once been black but was now an ugly brown. The second was hunter green, and the last book was a faded crimson. All of them were tattered and torn. Each bore its own tarnished metallic emblem, a spiral, a compass rose, and a star. They looked like less stylized versions of their published counterparts. I wanted to hold the manuscripts, but didn't ask to, sure that Joseph would not allow it. Isn't this all the evidence you need to prove the books are true? You could have experts study them, do tests on them, validate their age and authorship. Puh, experts, sure. Museums are a black hole for the proof of true history. I'd never see these books again, and all record of them, it would be erased. I'll take your word on that. Hey, what's that thing in there with them? The, the tube? Joseph removed a black plastic tube, and when he did, I saw that there was a strap attached to it. I realized that this cylinder was for protecting and transporting blueprints, or, as was the case here, a painting. He unscrewed the cap and upended the tube, letting the old canvas slide into his hand. I stepped back as he turned to unroll it on the floor with delicate precision. I looked on excitedly as the image was slowly revealed, feeling like I was being privy to something secret. I don't understand what I'm looking at. This painting represents the vessel as floating at some unknown point in the starry cosmos, as if a planet itself, or a mere placeholder for another world that cannot be depicted, but whose existence is certain, and to whom the orb is, somehow, fundamentally linked. That's how the painting is described in the manuscripts, anyway. So this is what's worth traveling through time to get, huh? Are you sure it's an accurate depiction? It had ought to be. It was painted by Clarence Grindle. <laughs> Whoa, seriously? Yeah. He made it about 120 years ago while stranded, while waiting to meet Pendergast in the Land of Phantoms. The painting is said to have been one of many, but this is the only surviving example of Grindel's art. If you're listening to this podcast, you've already seen the painting. I took a photo of it and, with Joseph's permission, I've used it for the cover of this project. Like the books when they went to print, I have thrown some extra flair on it for style, but it's essentially the same image. So if you need a refresher, take your phone out of your pocket and look. You'll also realize that the name of this podcast was taken from Joseph's vault, but that's not where my shameless borrowing ended. Hey, I was going to ask you, the last story you published, the one I used to find this place, it mentioned a little prayer or a mantra or slogan, whatever you want to call it. Oh yeah, that. What about it? Do you mind if I use it for my sign-off? For your what? In radio and podcasts, it's good to have a little something you always say at the end, like good night and good luck, or be safe out there, or whatever. Sure, have at it. Thanks. Joseph rolled up the painting and put it away. He returned the panel to its place in the floor, and we retreated from the vault, which he then sealed. He switched off the lights, and we went back up the stairs. Once he'd moved the bookcase into place again, he turned to me. So, what happens now? What do you mean? Well, I mean, is this it? Are we done after today? That's up to you. It's become very obvious to me that for this to be a successful investigation, let alone a podcast, you're going to have to be a big part of it. 
You've given me a good start, sure, but it's just been the broad strokes. I'd like to really dig into this thing, but I'll need you for that. Oh, I I don't know about that. You don't have to answer now. You'll have a couple of weeks or more to think about it. I gotta take all these recordings and cut them together into the first episode. I'll let you know when it comes out so you can give it a listen and decide if this is something you would want to do again. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I suppose that works. Very good. Maybe after the episode drops we can get some sponsors, start a Patreon for anyone who wants to support us. All that podcasty stuff. So is this goodbye? You said earlier you felt like we were supposed to meet. Do you still feel that way? Yes, I do. Then no, it's not goodbye. I left the bank that day and took all my recordings to the station. I've been going in early for a couple of weeks now, using the booth to record the narrations you've been hearing, including this one. Sylvia, as I told you she would, started helping me. So, what are you going to call it? I'm thinking the Endless Elsewhere podcast. Well, your first episode is shaping up to be an hour or more, so Endless Works is the title, I guess. I know it's running long, but I have to include everything in case there isn't a second episode. Does he not want to do any more? I don't know. I think he does. He's probably just nervous about returning to the public eye. He should be. Not sure this town is ready to hear from the Circle City Collector again. This first episode will be a good way to find out. I'll give the website at the end and invite people to message us with their thoughts. That's a good idea. All right, let's wrap this up. You want to record your sign-off now? Yeah, let's do it. Well, like you just heard, you can get in contact with us at EndlessElsewhere.com, which will have all of our social media links on it if you want to follow along. We'll also put links to Joseph's previous works if you are interested in that. And this wouldn't be a podcast if your host didn't ask you to please rate and review it. We'd appreciate that quite a bit. Also, subscribe to the show so that if there is that second episode, you'll know as soon as it arrives. I'm struggling to find the perfect way to end this, but nothing is coming to mind. Then again, according to Joseph, there is no perfect ending, because there is no ending. So maybe I shouldn't fret about it. (laughs) With Joseph's permission, I'll close the episode with a motto taken from his work. Do good. Fight evil. Repeat. I'm Lindsay Mallon, and this is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast.